Andrew Womack Ministries presents part 8 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is tape number 115 in our Life for Today Bible Commentary series. And on this series, I continue the teaching through the book of Ephesians. We're now in Ephesians chapter 4. We're beginning with verse 28, and this is found on page 1124 of our printed materials. Real quickly, the background on this is in the fourth chapter. I can go back to verse 17 where he began to start telling us not to walk as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of our mind. He told us to put off the old man and put on the new man. And then he started contrasting things, showing us what was of the old man versus what is of the new man. He talked about not lying anymore in verse 25, but speaking the truth. And then he talked about being angry. And we took a little sideline here and described that this isn't talking about an anger towards people, but this is talking about a good type of anger. In other words, he's admonishing us to be angry at the devil and never let that go to sleep. Keep it alive and awake. In verse 28, he says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. And so here Paul, once again, is instructing people to lay aside things that are of the old man. Stealing is of the old man. Not laboring is of the old man. And I don't want to make too big of a point out of this, but I really believe that you can take from here a lot of things. And this is verified by many other passages of Scripture especially in the book of Psalms and Proverbs. As the Proverbs talk about wisdom, it talks about that there is profit in all labor. It says that God will bless what you set your hand unto. In many other places, the Scripture talks about laboring for our, our wealth and our income. But the Scripture teaches against just doing nothing and expecting to have our needs met. Sad to say there are a lot of Christians that believe because God is going to supply their needs, they look for it to come supernaturally. And certainly God is the one who blesses and prospers us, but there are abundance of scriptures that tell us to work and to labor. This is just one of them here. And I believe that you can say that if a person is getting their needs met without laboring, then it's comparable here to stealing. Now, I know that that is not the attitude that our society has today. You know, many people live off of welfare, off of government support, and please don't misunderstand this. I understand that there are some people, like for instance, if a person is uh, completely invalid, or I've got a friend who was um, in Vietnam and had his legs blown off and parts of his fingers and uh, his eyes, he was nearly blind, and he has lived off government support, and I believe that the government owes him every penny of that for putting his life in harm's way. He's got a great attitude. I'm saying there may be some instances where a person is physically handicapped, and I think that it's a good thing that other people take it upon themselves to help him. Now, I still would, uh, you know, be careful there about an attitude, a person just feeling like everybody owes them something and they're bitter, etc. I'm not talking about that. But I think that there are some valid cases. I believe that there may be some situations where a person very temporarily as they get their life back together, if they go through the death of a loved one, if they go through the loss of a job or something, very temporarily, you know, it may be okay to take this. Please don't misunderstand this and, and 
take it that I'm saying that anybody who ever draws a welfare check, an unemployment check or something is wrong. But I'm saying this, that those who live that way consistently, when they could be laboring, and I believe that that's a good qualification, they could be laboring, they could be doing something different, and yet they aren't, and they are just mooching off of society. I believe that that is what the Lord is speaking against here. In other words, he when he says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor. In other words, those who labor are not thieves. If you are getting your finances, again, with maybe some exceptions, but generally speaking, if you're just living off of other people, that's like stealing. And that is not the nature of a Christian. That is not what God says. I've got some teaching that I did recently as I was teaching in Shreveport, Louisiana, and I was teaching on prosperity. I taught about financial prosperity, and I brought out a lot of scriptures concerning things like getting rich quick through, you know, the lottery, through gambling, and through things like that. There's some people that argue that there's nothing wrong with that, but it's the whole principle behind it. God put a blessing on hard labor. God put a blessing on putting your hand to something, and then God will bless it. But if you don't put your hand to anything, and you're looking for God to meet your need, then a hundred times zero is zero. If you've done nothing and God's blessing came, it still would amount to nothing. And yet, if you'll just do something, if you'll do whatever it is that you can, maybe you don't have the same talents or abilities or Maybe your circumstances are such that you aren't able to go out and do as much as some people. But if you'll do something, then God can multiply it. But those who are just sitting back doing nothing and believing God for prosperity, I believe that that is a trait of the old man, of the unregenerate man. That is not a godly trait. In First Thessalonians, or I believe it's Second Thessalonians chapter 3, the scripture there, Paul was talking about a person who wouldn't work at all, but he just went from house to house, and he was a busybody. And it says that, you know, quit fellowshipping with that guy, and if he doesn't work, don't feed him. Don't let him eat. Don't let him mooch off of you. You know, there's so many applications. Like, again, I, I don't want to spend the whole time on this, but I believe that this is an important point, that we are supposed to help the poor. I believe we are supposed to have compassion on people who are, you know, having a hard time. Anybody can go through a hard time for a period of time. And, yes, we need to have compassion. We don't need to be compassionless. But, you know, there are some people who are professional bums, or we call them today the more politically correct term of homeless or, you know, and we have nice, compassionate ways of speaking at it. And there's some people that that's a temporary thing and anybody could go through a problem. But there are some people that have made a lifestyle of it. They don't want to work. They go to great effort, really. They put a lot of effort into staying away from work and skipping it. And they, they take any money that they get and they spend it on booze or they spend it on dope or they do something else. They aren't responsible. They aren't trying and a person like that, I don't believe that we are supposed to subsidize that lifestyle. I've had people before that have come to me, and instead of giving them cash and letting them go out and continue their lifestyle, if they really want help, I'll go get them food, or I'll let them work, and then I'll go take them to a hotel and put them up, and I'll put them on their feet, and I'll help a person if they truly are in need and trying to do something, but I am not going to subsidize their lifestyle. And I believe that there are some people who don't work at all. And they would look at that and think, but I'm on welfare. You don't understand all of the kids that I've got and all of this and all of the different reasons. Well, I believe that the Bible calls that stealing. And again, I know that there needs to be some correct 
rightly dividing of the word and correct application. I hope nobody's getting condemned and taking this wrong. But there are some people that need to be convicted and realize that, hey, I need to get out and be a productive, contributing member of society instead of somebody that just takes from society. And that's the point that he's getting across. Don't steal anymore. In other words, don't get this attitude of being a taker, but now that you're a new man, become a giver. Be a part of the answer instead of a part of the problem. Labor, working with your hands, the thing that is good, so that you may have to give to him that needs. Instead of having this attitude of, oh, give me, give me, give me, and I need this, and instead of having this vacuum attitude where you are just constantly sucking and and pulling everything towards yourself, thinking, I'm the one in need. Change the attitude. Adopt this new attitude of a believer and see yourself as the person who's the giver. When you go to church, instead of praying, oh, God, have somebody come help me, go to church saying, God, bless me and help me so that I can go give to someone else. Show me someone that's in need. See, this is the whole point here. It's not just a matter of don't go out and rob banks. It's not just a matter of don't take something from a store and shoplift. It's much more than that. I believe that it's talking about an entire attitude of being a taker instead of a giver. And that's what he's talking about. And, of course, that's uh, amplified and really exhibited in the life of a person who's a thief. And so he uses that. But I believe that the application is much broader. In verse 29, he says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Again, I believe that this is talking about more than just don't use profanity or vulgar type speech. Matter of fact, if you read this in the Amplified Bible, it says this, Let no foul or polluting language, nor evil word, nor unwholesome or worthless talk ever come out of your mouth, but only such speech as is good and beneficial to the spiritual progress of others. Now, see, that would include all types of profanity and vulgar type things, but it certainly would go much further than that. I believe that gossip, see, is something that this verse could be talking about. Criticism, slander, jesting which isn't appropriate. He'll deal with that in just a few verses down here in the fifth chapter. I believe that all of these things, see, even the context is bearing this out when it talks about foolish talking and jesting which are not convenient in Ephesians chapter 5. So this is talking about more than just what we call the vile type of language, but this is talking about slander and all kinds of things. Again, it's amazing how Christians miss the true intent of what the Scripture is saying, and they just think about, well, this is talking about don't take the Lord's name in vain and things like this. I believe it certainly includes that. But, you know, when a person gets born again, I've heard many, many people talk about how that their speech just begin to clear up immediately. You know, I even know some people personally that used to blaspheme God and say vile things. And I mean upon salvation just nearly instantly because of their newfound love for the Lord. And now they knew he was real just instantly. They knew it was wrong to blast him and to say those things. And they even got to where they couldn't stand to hear other people say it. But many times those people don't recognize that slandering, talking about other people, criticism, you know, to where somebody just always has an opinion. I mean a negative opinion. I've seen some people that it doesn't matter who they go here minister. That minister could just minister powerful, touch a lot of people's lives, see many people's lives change. And if they say one thing that just isn't perfect, then this person is going to go out and start talking about where they were wrong and what they did wrong. And I tell you, that is contrary to what this scripture is talking about. 
We need to go to seeing the good in people. We need to say things that will help their spiritual progress, is what that Amplified says. In verse 30, he says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, there's a couple of things. One thing you can see here is that the Holy Spirit is a person. This is not just a force. There are some people who will always try and explain away the Trinity because, honestly, there is no way I can comprehend the Trinity. I can believe it. I can accept it because the Scriptures talk about it. I've already dealt with that in other passages of Scripture. But I can't truly understand how one person can be manifest in three different persons at the same time. You know, it might be able, uh, you know, for me to understand it if you liken it to like water. Water can be uh, a solid as ice. It can be a liquid and it can be a gas as, you know, it evaporates. But it can't be all three of those things at one time. If, you know, God manifested himself sometimes as God the Father and then sometimes as the Son and then sometimes as the Holy Spirit, well, then I can understand that. But this is something that really I accept, I believe, but I can't totally comprehend how God can be all three, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost at the same time without just dividing himself. It's not like, you know, some people, again, use an egg, say that there is a shell and then there's the white and then there's a yolk and all three of them make an egg and you can separate them and see all three distinct parts, but yet together they make an egg. Well, Again, that's a symbolism, and it may have some point, but it's not a perfect representation because the Father is all God by himself. Jesus was all God by himself. He had the fullness of God. He didn't have just part of God. He didn't like an egg, see, that the yolk is a part of the egg. No, Jesus was God. He was all God, and yet God the Father was all God, and yet the Holy Spirit is all God. Now, see, again, the comparison here. We use things for illustrations, but I can't totally understand it. So because of this hardness of understanding it, there are some people who just constantly try and reduce things like the Trinity, the deity of the Holy Spirit. They try and simplify it and put it into terms. And in an effort, many people have come to say, like, for instance, the Jesus-only people, the oneness people, say that Jesus is God. And sometimes Jesus manifested himself as the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Sometimes he moved as the Holy Spirit. But there really is only one God who manifests himself in different ways. And they reduce the Holy Spirit to just an influence a force, a power, but not a person. But see, this scripture here says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He's a person. And this scripture and many others go along with that. I've already talked about the Holy Spirit being God and being a part of the Godhead in Acts chapter 5. So this scripture shows that the Holy Spirit is a person who can be grieved. And we are not to grieve him. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, I believe that in context, he's been listing things here, talking about lying. Lying is something that is contrary to the new man, and it grieves the Holy Spirit. Um, You know, not working, but rather being a thief, whether it's through physically stealing something that belongs to another, or whether it's through just not working and not being productive and becoming a taker instead of a giver, uh, through corrupt communication out of our mouth. All of these things grieve the Holy Spirit. He goes on to talk about bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, etc. And then in the fifth chapter, he mentions other things, whoremonger and uh, unclean person. 
and covetous person, etc. So all of these things grieve the Holy Spirit. So you can take the context right here and come up with a number of things that grieve the Holy Spirit. I believe that basically you can just say anything that is contrary to God's perfect will, contrary to the Word of God, is grieving to the Holy Spirit. And we do not need to grieve the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul is using reasoning here. Instead of talking about, uh, you know, the wrath of God coming on us, he's talking from a relationship angle. He's saying that, you know, the Holy Spirit has sealed us. He is living on the inside of us. There is a person here. And because of relationship with a real live person who indwells us, we need to do what's right. See, most people argue for holiness on the basis of if you don't do what's right, God is going to get you. And so fear becomes a motivation. Rather, Paul is talking here on a motivation of love. He says, don't you remember that the Holy Spirit has sealed you, that he lives in you, that he's a person that can be grieved. So therefore, do what's right. Do these things because God Almighty is grieved. He's disappointed. It, it offends. It hurts God to see you not living properly. Now, I don't believe it angers him. His wrath has been placed on Jesus. The New Testament believer is not going to come under the wrath and the punishment and the condemnation of Jesus. But just because the wrath has been removed and there is no punishment doesn't mean we're free to do anything because we still have a relationship. We have a real person that we are relating to, and we don't want to grieve him. A person who is truly born again does not want to grieve the Holy Ghost. In verse 31, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. These words, bitterness, wrath, and anger, are very closely related. Matter of fact, it's very hard to distinguish them. I'm not sure that I totally know the difference. I do know that you could be bitter towards somebody without really expressing it. I've seen this in other people that they have a root of bitterness, and yet they can smile, and because of social pressure and because they don't want to be perceived as, uh, you know, being a mean person or whatever, they smile and say whatever, but in their heart they're bitter. There could be unforgiveness and things like this, but it doesn't have to be expressed. When you talk about wrath, I believe that wrath does have to be expressed. I can't think of any examples or any application of the word wrath that there wouldn't be some manifestation, outward manifestation. If a person is truly, I mean, if they have wrath in their heart, which is a very strong word, then I believe it would be expressed. If the person that they had that wrath towards walked into the room, I believe that there would be an expression of it, whether it was violent or physically, you know, expressed, it would be, it would show somehow or another in their countenance or in the way that they refused to talk to that person, whereas bitterness could be smoothed over. Now, of course, the scripture talks about a root of bitterness will spring up and defile the whole body. I'm not saying that bitterness is acceptable. I'm just saying it's more easily controlled. It's not as strong, as powerful, and overpowering emotion as is wrath. Of course, anger, I believe that you could also be angry on the inside. You know, instead of just having a hurt that causes some bitterness and some disappointment, things like this, I believe you could actually be angry and yet still conceal that anger to a degree. Now, probably it would be manifest in most cases. So, anyway, these things are kind of interdependent. Even the word clamor, according to uh, Strong's, the word clamor is defined as an outcry in tumult or grief. And it actually comes from a word that means to shout. So the word clamor is talking about some loud outburst 
that comes motivated out of tumult or grief. In other words, a person grieving, you could talk about their wailing and their travail as being clamor. You could talk about any person who's in an argument and they're screaming at each other, and that's clamor. So when the scripture is talking about to put away clamor, see, this is related, and it's talking about like in any type of uh, relationship. If you are raising your voice, if you are shouting at each other, that's clamor. That is what this is talking against, and it says don't do things like that. Now, you know, there it's inevitable. It's impossible that you just, you know, in a marriage could live with a person and never disagree with them. There'd be times that you could say things, but you can certainly say it without having to shout at each other, without being in bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, etc. I think I've mentioned this before, that my mother and father, out of the 20-something years that they were married, never had an argument. You know, I know that some people would disagree with that and say, well, it depends on how you define it. Some people just believe that's totally impossible. Well... I don't know all of the details here, but I believe that there were probably disagreements. I believe that there were probably times that they disagreed, but my father ran the house. My mother submitted. She loved to have it that way. He didn't dominate and control her or force her. That's the way she wanted. She just, you know, you can't have an argument with just one person. And, I mean, she was willing to submit. She was willing to let him make the decisions. And if they're wrong decisions, he'd eventually find out. And because of that... They didn't have these arguments. It does not have to be that way. I believe that there were probably disagreements. They didn't always see eye to eye, but there does not have to be clamor, shouting at each other, arguments. You know, this is so obvious that you think, well, everybody knows that. Well, not everybody does. I've actually talked to some people who grew up in a situation that was so strifeful that they honestly didn't know that it could be any other way. It doesn't have to be that way. The new person is not created. Your born-again spirit does not have all of this bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. That should be put away from us with all malice. The word malice means intent to hurt. Now, again, there are times that you may have to be strong with a person, and you may have to say things that are hard and that they may not like. There may be times that people get offended. But the key here is what is the intent? Is the intent to hurt them? Is it to humiliate them? Is it to get even with them? Are you trying to even a score? Were you doing this because they hurt you, so therefore you want to hurt them? If that's so, then that's malice. And the scripture here tells us not to do anything with malice, that malice should be put away from us. And so there are times that you speak the truth in love, and you may have to have tough love. But what's your motive? Is it really to help? Are you motivated out of love? Are you saying the truth out of compassion, even though the truth may hurt? Well, if you are, well, that's okay. But if you're doing it because you are trying to hurt this person to get even with them, that's wrong. That needs to be put away. In verse 32, it says, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You know, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I spent quite a bit of time talking about God's kind of love is kind. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about that. You know, a lot of people, it's amazing, but if we would just be kind to our mate, to our children, to our people at work, there are some people that just honestly aren't kind. They aren't polite to other people. That is not a godly trait. God is kind. And here is a command for us to be kind one to another. Not just to God, not just to ourselves, but kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. 
See, this very verse takes into account that there are going to be differences. There are going to be times that people offend us, but it says we are supposed to forgive even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. How did God forgive us? Did he wait until we repented? Did he wait until we asked for forgiveness? Did he wait until we groveled in the dirt and did some kind of penance and suffered and he got even and took out his wrath on us? Of course not. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8 that God commended his love toward us in, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God extended forgiveness towards us before we ever repented, before we ever asked for forgiveness. And this scripture is commanding us to forgive even as. That means in exactly the same way as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. God forgave us before we asked forgiveness, before we repented, before we made restitution. If somebody's wronged you, we are commanded here to forgive even in the same way that God has forgiven us. That means you are supposed to forgive them whether they've asked for forgiveness or not. You are supposed to forgive them even if they ever, never repent, if they still go on and hurt you. Now, let me qualify this and say that this does not mean that you, because you are trying to forgive them even as God has forgiven you, you just allow this person to come in and run smooth over you. Like, for instance, take an employer-employee situation. You know, there are some people that in my uh, ministry here I've had to fire. And they aren't just terrible people. They weren't bad people, but they did things that were wrong. And I didn't uh, just, you know, do this on the spur of the moment. I'm very long-suffering. Matter of fact, everybody associated with me says that I give people too many opportunities if I could take time on this tape, I'm not going to do it. But if I took time and told you about some of the people that I've fired in our ministry, and if I told you the things that happened, you would just be shocked, thinking you should have let them go a long time before. So I feel like I've always been merciful towards people. And yet, you know, there just comes times that, I mean, it needs to change. And I've had a couple of people that i fired. I remember one person in particular come to me and say that they were sorry and that they saw what they did, and that they they repented, and that they wanted to come back, and they would do it again, and they'd straighten out, etc., etc. Did you know that I forgave this person because I never was mad at them in the first place? I really love them, and, and they have gone on to prosper, and God's blessed them. I hadn't got anything against them. But it just can't, It was a character-type issue. It wasn't just a mistake. You know, if a person does something by mistake... Then you can forgive them and basically just patch everything up and go on. But if a person has done something because of a character issue, like say, for instance, they have a personality and their personality is just mean and malicious, well, I can forgive them and I can forgive them and turn the other cheek if it's just me. But there are times that in the ministry, in an employer-employee situation, I eventually have to say, that's it, we've tried to work with you, and they may repent and say, oh, no, I want to come back, I'll change again. But, you know, if it's a character issue, if it's a personality type of flaw, those things can change, but they aren't going to just change instantaneously. And if the person hasn't responded prior to that, I had to just let these people go. And see, I didn't reinstate them. I said, hey, I wish you the best, and I pray that you do change. I've heard through the grapevine that this one person I'm thinking about has made some dramatic changes and said that they now understand what I was saying. And I believe that they've probably grown through it, and that's great. But I just didn't have another two or three years for them to be in a leadership position and changing at my expense. I needed to go on and get someone else. So, see, I forgave them. 
But that didn't mean that I just continued to allow them to function with, you know, these things that were hindering us and hurting our ministry and causing me problems. See, I can understand that. I can understand a parent-child. You can forgive your child, and you can have nothing against them, but that doesn't mean that you're going to let them take the car again if they've done something wrong, and you think that it may cause them to be killed because they aren't being responsible, or maybe they'd kill somebody else. You can forgive them and love them. It doesn't mean you have a thing against them, but it doesn't mean that you just automatically act as if nothing had happened. I think that sometimes people get confused on this, and they equate forgiveness with just thinking that, hey, everything's fine. It's as if nothing has happened. It's not so. In the ministry, if a minister does something wrong, the Lord, of course, forgives them. He's already forgiven them before they even committed it. His love for them is unconditional. But you know what? If that person is up there, and if they're doing lots of damage, if they're just bitter and angry, and if they're spewing forth this stuff, God loves them, but that doesn't mean he has to open doors for them and promote them and foster and give opportunity for this vileness to come out of that person. I believe that God loves them. He will use them to the degree that he can use them, to the degree that they're submitted to him. But I don't believe that the Lord is going to open up doors for somebody who is just, you know, missing it big time in some areas. Now, that doesn't mean he won't use them. The doors that they've already opened, the people that they've already ministered to, the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. Romans eleven twenty nine says that. And God will use a person and continue to use them even though they don't deserve it. But it doesn't mean he'll promote them and expand their ministry because he doesn't want that kind of stuff to come forth. And does that mean that he hasn't forgiven them? Does that mean that he's not really walking in love? Of course not. So, see, I believe that, yes, we are supposed to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. That means that we forgive people before they ask for forgiveness. You know, I've even come to a place to where I just made a decision. I'm going to walk in love and forgiveness towards anybody. It doesn't matter what somebody does to me. And some of you may have to pray and ask God to help you to understand this, but I really believe that you can come to a place to where I have committed to walking in love with people. And it really doesn't matter what a person does to me. I am going to love them, and I am going to forgive them. And I can do that. And because I've already determined that in my heart, you know what? If a person wrongs me, it may hurt, and I may have to deal with my emotions a little bit, but I've already willed to forgive them. I am not going to curse them. I am not going to speak evil of them. I'm not going to run them down. I am not going to form a campaign to get even with them with maliciousness to hurt them. I'm not going to become bitter, wrathful, angry. I'm not going to get in clamor and shout with them. I've just already predetermined these things. I've already predetermined to walk in love even as God has forgiven me. See, my love and my forgiveness isn't dependent upon what a person does. It's dependent upon choices that I make. And I have chosen to walk in love even as God has forgiven me. I might miss it because I'm human. And because I don't seek the Lord perfectly, there may be a time that I miss it. But I can say that the vast majority of times, it's already predetermined. And when I do miss it, I just ask forgiveness and go back. It's certainly not going to get me down. And I can say this, that over the many years, over 20, 30-something years, that, you know, the times that I really have gotten angry at somebody have been very few and far between. And I certainly don't ever manifest it and get to a point that it uh, causes problems. I've just chosen to walk in love. And I believe that we can do that. Some people don't believe this is possible, and yet the Lord here has given us a command to forgive even as God has forgiven us. He would not command us to do something that you cannot do. 
This is important. Some people's reference point, what they think is normal Christianity, just like we were dealing with in the 26th verse up there, let not the sun go down on your wrath. There's some people that just think you've got to get angry. That if somebody hurts you, you've got to get angry. Just don't let it go over 24 hours. And, of course, if you remember that teaching from our last tape, that's not what he's talking about here. That was talking about a different type of anger. You do not have to be angry. You do not have to go through the day with anger and just get it taken care of by night. Don't let it become long-term. No, you can walk in love to a degree that, praise God, you forgive other people the same way that God has forgiven you. God forgave you before you were ever born. He died and paid for your sins before the sins were ever committed. And he extended his love towards you and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. You can do the same thing to other people. You must do the same thing to other people. You know, this is a tremendous type of love. But before you can give this type of love, you've got to receive it. There are some people who are masquerading as Christians because they live in a Christian country, because they go to church and they try and be a moral person, they think that that makes them a Christian. But no, you have to experience uh, a brand new nature where God literally imparts his nature on the inside of you. You have to be born again, as Jesus talks about. So there are people today who are trying to live the Christian life and don't even have that new nature on the inside of them. It's impossible for you to give something that you don't have. And so there are many people who consider themselves to be Christians who truly aren't, and the real key is that they just need to be born again. I believe that. You know, I've got my youngest son. Uh, I won't go into any detail because it's not my testimony, it's his, and it's still in process, and I'll let him give it. But there has been a wonderful transformation in his life. I mean, totally night to day, and he's just fanatical now, seeking the Lord, which is wonderful. And you know the key to it? As I've talked to him, he got born again. He went through the motions and said he was born again when he was five years old, and you know, there's no way that I knew what his heart was. We accepted it, and we believed that he was born again. But he's made it very clear that, no, he really experienced God. And in his case, here was the problem. He was trying to live a Christian life without ever being born again, without ever being changed. It just can't happen. Now, it is possible for a person to be born again and still not really experience, understand in their intellect the love of God. And I certainly am a testimony of that. I was born again when I was young. And there was a real commitment on my part. But I was 18 years old before I truly understood and experienced God's love for me. Prior to that time, I believe that if I died, I would have gone to be with the Lord. But I didn't experience, understand God's love. I was told that it was conditional. And because of that, I didn't really have an experiential knowledge of God's love. And therefore, I wasn't really walking in God's love. You can't give away what you don't have. But man, when I got filled to overflowing with the love of God, instantly I began to walk in this scripture here, Ephesians 4.32, because I now had God's love. It was so easy for me to forgive others once I truly understood and experienced what forgiveness was all about. Now, again, I believe that I was born again, but it was just in my spirit, man. It hadn't become experiential. I didn't know the Word of God. I was living well below my privileges. And I believe that there are some people who are truly born-again Christians. They have put their faith in the Lord. They understand salvation. They are changed. They do have a new nature, but they haven't renewed their mind to it. And because of it, they are living 
in their own self, under their own knowledge and ability, and you just can't give away what you personally have not experienced. In the area of marriage, I see this a lot. I tell people about how they're supposed to love their mate as Christ loved the church, an unconditional love. And yet that person has never understood that God loved them unconditionally. There are many people that are under the deception of thinking that God only loves them when they're worth loving. And so they believe in their heart. They may not say it in these terms, but they believe in a conditional love. And because of it, they can't give an unconditional love when they've never received it. So the first thing that many people have to do before they can start loving their mate the way that God wants them to, they have to let God start loving them the way the Scripture talks about and experience it first, and then they can turn around and give it. But this Scripture makes it very clear that this is the normal Christian life. Walking in love, being kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. That is the normal Christian life. That is the goal that we are to shoot at. We should not look around, compare ourselves with other people, and settle for something less. That is what God has for us. Going on to chapter 5, in verse 1, he says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Now, in this verse, he uses this word, therefore. In other words, remember that the chapter and verse divisions were put in here by the translators for the purpose of helping reference places. And that's good. There's nothing wrong with it. But it does not mean that he changed thoughts. He's continuing on. He's been talking about putting off the new man, putting on the new man. He talked about what some of those differences are, not lying anymore, but speaking the truth, not stealing anymore, but working with your hands, having so that you can give unto others, not letting evil communications come out of your mouth. And then he talked about loving one another and forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Be ye therefore followers of God. See, the previous verse, he had just said, in a sense, he's saying, imitate God. In the same way that God forgave you, that's the way that you should forgive others. In the same way that God has been kind towards you, you should be kind towards others. In the same way that God is tender-hearted towards you, you should be tender-hearted towards others. You should be imitators of God. Boy, that is a radical statement. And if people could really get hold of this, I challenge you right now, let the Holy Ghost speak this into your heart, that you are supposed to be Christians. The word Christian means little Christ. Did you know it was originally a derogatory term towards the followers of Christ, and it was spoken from the unbelievers against the Christians, saying they're acting just like little Jesuses. That's what the word Christian means, is little Christ, Christ-like. It was a derogatory term at first. They were saying, who do they think they are? They're walking like Jesus. They're turning the other cheek. They're, they're ministering forgiveness. They're operating in things that, man, the people of their day thought this is so weird. You can't act like this. you got to act in hatred. When somebody's throwing you to the lions and taking your wife and kids and throwing them to the lions, there ought to be anger and hatred coming out of you. And instead, those people are saying, lay not this sin to their charge, like Stephen did in the seventh chapter of Acts. And because of it, people looked at him and said, you're just little Christians, little Christ. You're acting like Christ. They meant it as a derogatory term, but it actually was a tremendous compliment. And it became a, a name for the followers of Christ, Christians. But you know what? It all was based on that they were acting like Christ. They were imitating Christ. They were living like him. They were manifesting their life like Christ. And this is what Paul is saying here. We should be followers of God as dear children. It's our nature. 
You know, when he says that we should do it as dear children, once again, what he's doing, he's encouraging people to live a holy life, but not out of the negative motivation of fear that most people use today. Because, see, 1 John 4.18 says fear has torment. When you are trying to live holy because you've got to do it or God won't bless you, that has an element of torment in it, fear. That if I don't perform well enough, I'm not going to get it. But see, when you are living holy, not out of a motivation of fear, but you're doing it rather because I love God. This is how God has treated me. God is so good to me. And because I've got his love and his goodness in my heart, I want to release it to others. See, then you're living that way. There is no fear with it. There's no torment. There's no frustration. I live a holy life because it's a superior way to live. I am happy, and I try and be a blessing and an encouragement to other people because God has blessed me so much. I know what it's like to be encouraged. I know what it's like to be loved when I don't, when I'm not lovely. I know what it's like to have mercy extended towards me, so I extend mercy towards other people. I do it not because I have to do it. It's my nature. I'm a child of God. It is my nature. I am totally convinced that if people really understood who they are in Christ and what they have in Christ, if they really got a revelation of it, then it would be their nature to go out and live holy. And it's just like Paul is saying here. We would be followers of God as dear children. You know, children imitate their parents. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's bad. But if the parent is a good parent, it's good. If the parent, if the child would just go imitate the parent, that's not automatic. It's not automatic that we are just instantly like God. We've got to really see Him as He is. Over in First John chapter three, verse two, it says, "When we see Him as He is, we shall be like Him." And that's not only talking about the second return of the Lord. That's technically what it's talking about in those passages. But I believe it has a spiritual application, too, that if a person ever really saw God, really got a glimpse of his glory and of God's love for us and his greatness and his goodness, if you ever make, if that ever becomes a true revelation that captivates your focus and your attention, then you'll begin to be like him. A person who is not manifesting the life of God is a person who hasn't really got a revelation of God. That is a profound statement. If we really knew our inheritance, if we really knew what it meant to be sons of God, I guarantee you we would live holy. And that's what Paul is arguing for right here. He's arguing for holiness because it's our nature. We're children. We should be imitators of God. In verse 2, he says, and walk in love. The word walk is used many times here in the book of Ephesians. It's talking about more than just putting one foot in front of the other. It's talking about a lifestyle. It's talking about your manner of life, your behavior. And he says, walk in love. This is that agape love that we've already had a number of footnotes on. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I've got a good one over there. It's talking about walking this God kind of love, the kind of love where he forgave even before we asked for forgiveness. Even while we were still sinners, he commended his love towards us. You walk in that God kind of love, how? As Christ also hath loved us. Again, he's talking about that we should be imitators. The reason we can love is because we've been loved. If you need to love other people more, instead of just seeing what you need to do, and instead of becoming guilt-ridden, condemned, and frustrated because you don't love people more, what you need to do is go back and say, God, if I'm having problems loving people, it must be because I really don't understand how much you love me. 
You go back and let God love on you. You get a revelation of how much God loves you, and you can instantly turn around and begin to love other people. See, this is what he's saying. Walk in love, even as Christ also has loved us. First John chapter five says, or excuse me, First John chapter four says that we love Him because He first loved us. You first of all have to receive the love of God, then you turn around and give it. In the same way as Christ loved us, that's how come we can love other people. And it says that He has given Himself for us. You know this terminology here. The word for us here, the phrase for us, comes from a Greek word where it's not talking about that he just did something on our behalf or, you know, something that was beneficial for us. But it's actually talking about substitutionary. He literally took our place. He gave himself in our place. Jesus didn't just come and do something for us. He literally came and substituted himself for us. He literally took our punishment. He took our sin, our shame, our sickness, our hurt, our bitterness, our wrath. He took it upon him and took it out of the way. That is so much stronger than just saying that he made some atonement that was beneficial to us, that it was on our behalf. No, he didn't just do something for us in that sense. He did something for us in the sense that he literally took our shame and punishment and bore it for us. Again, a revelation of that will make a huge difference in your life. If you can ever understand that Jesus has already borne your sin, your separation from God. When he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Did you know that was, should have been you and me that was saying that? And yet Jesus took our sin. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, he literally became sin for us. He suffered separation from God. God literally forsook Jesus because you and I should have been forsaken because of our sin. And as he took our sin, he took our punishment, our separation from God, so that, praise God, we do not have to bear it. It says he gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Do you know now, when God sees us, he sees us through the sacrifice of Jesus, and that sacrifice is a sweet-smelling savor. In other words, this means that it's pleasing unto God. God accepted what Jesus did. It worked. It was effective. It was effectual. It produced. It accomplished what he came to do. And because of it, now God can look at us and actually see us through the blood of Jesus, pure and holy and clean, and he's pleased with us. It's a sweet-smelling savor. It made us sanctified and able to be a worshiper of God. In verse 3, he begins to contrast this, basically the same thing that was done in the fourth chapter where he, you know, contrasted lying and speaking the truth and stealing and working, etc. Old man being put off, new man being put on. In verse 3, he says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints nor filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Now, these are things that honestly should be, should go without saying. A person who is truly born again and loves God and has God's nature in him, there is no reason that we should operate in fornication. That's, I believe that everybody, every person who's a Christian would agree with this. Fornication should not be something that's named among Christians. Now, it is. And there are scriptural examples of this happening among first century Christians. First Corinthians chapter 5 talks about one of the believers in Corinth who actually committed 
uh, incest with his mother-in-law. I believe it was his mother. It may have been his mother. But anyway, stepmother or mother or something like that. It was incest. And this man committed that. He was a believer. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul talked about restore this man. Receive him. His punishment's enough. He's repented. Accept him back into the number. So this man was a believer who committed fornication. And Paul said such fornication it as isn't even named among the Gentiles. Christians can do anything that a non-Christian can do, but it shouldn't be happening. It's certainly not consistent with our nature. So he's saying that fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness, let it not be once named among you. If you'll look in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, I've made this point a number of times as we go through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians and Colossians are kind of like twin books. They cover the same materials. They cover the same progression of things. You can see this especially over when it starts talking about children obey your parents in the Lord, and then it gives parents instructions, etc. Same progression is done over in the book of Colossians. So they parallel each other. And over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, if you'll look at the context, you'll see that once again Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 are paralleling each other. And over there it talks about covetousness, which is idolatry. That basically, it could have been put right into this passage of Scripture. It says, but fornication and all uncleanness are covetousness, which is idolatry. It's the same writer. He just gave a little bit more explanation over in the book of Colossians. So here, covetousness, where you are seeking things for yourself. Did you know you can get to where you are so self-serving that literally self becomes your God? It becomes an idol. It's idolatry. Anything that takes the place of or supersedes the place of Jesus is idolatry. Anything that is more important to you than God is, is idolatry. And it doesn't have to just be talking about money. It can be talking about loving the praise of people. That's covetous. You're just looking for things for them yourself. You're always wanting all the praise, all the recognition. Any of these type of things are covetousness. And it says that these things should not be once named among you as becometh saints. It should not be present. Sad to say, it is. And I'm going to deal with this more in just a moment here. But in verse 4, he mentions some really interesting things here. You know, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, I think that most Christians would recognize that all of these things are really bad, and they are things that should not be named among Christians. But in verse 4, he names some things here that many Christians do not realize are bad. He says, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. He puts in here foolish talking. You know, this is an amazing statement. I don't know that I can totally define what foolish talking is here. I believe it could be a lot of different things. But, you know, I do believe that just silliness, uh, if you look up the Greek words that are used here, it literally is talking about silliness. Buffoonery is one of the definitions you know, just to where you get silly, to where, I mean, I think that everybody at some time or another, you know, may say something that isn't probably as wise, as smart, as discreet as they should. But um, I don't believe that it's talking about just ever making a slip. This is talking about this is a lifestyle. Some people just literally act silly. They're stupid. And that certainly is not consistent with a godly character. He also said, nor jesting which are not convenient. Now, it's important here that he put this qualification on, and he says, which are not convenient. 
In other words, he's implying that there are some types of jesting which are convenient. Convenient literally means to be suitable. And synonyms for the word convenient are appropriate, good, suitable, useful. So when it's talking about jesting which are not convenient, it's talking about jesting which isn't appropriate. It's not good. It's not suitable to the occasion. Again, I really believe that there is a place for jesting, or I'm not sure that, you know, the modern-day word is jesting, but there is a place for humor. As a minister, I minister to a lot of people, and sometimes when I'm sharing the Word of God, I mean, some of the things I'm sharing can get pretty heavy. People are being convicted by the Holy Ghost, and you can slip in something just a little humorous, and it really lightens the atmosphere. It's kind of like putting a pill in a person's mouth, and man, they may, you know, it may taste a little bad, and they're thinking about spitting it out, and you go up and slap them on the back, and just all of a sudden they swallow it. They can't help. Well, sometimes a little bit of humor can do that. I mean, you get a person listening, they, they got something that may be a little distasteful, but you put a little humor in, and they laugh, and it's just like they swallow it, and it goes right down on the inside of them. I've seen situations that were real tense before where there was strife, and I mean, it could go either way. And in the midst of that thing, you know, a soft answer turns away wrath. And I think sometimes you can just put a little humor in there and turn away wrath. Anyway, I really believe it's a very positive thing. Plus, I really believe that the Lord wants us to be happy. Scripture says over in the book of Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows. I guarantee you, Jesus was not the somber, sad, religious concept that is sometimes presented to us. He did not go around just grieving all of the time. Now, the Scripture does say that he suffered, that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he certainly suffered as he took the sins of the world. But the Scripture also says he was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows. I believe that there were times of great rejoicing. You know, the Scripture talks about that if you rejoice at the wrong time, it says it's like putting, I think the King James terminology is nitre upon, um, I forgot what it's called, but anyway, I looked that up before, and it's and it's the exact same thing as pouring salt on a snail, if you've ever done that. I did that when I was a kid. We used to have these slugs, big old things, come up on our porch, and if you put salt on them, they just melt. And that's what it's talking about. Man, you know, if somebody is really grieving and you come in just joking and goofing off, it is not convenient. The Scripture says rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. There's a time, man, that you need to set aside that levity and you need to get serious and you need to deal with the situation. But there is a time for jesting or for fun. And I guarantee you, I really believe that God is pleased with that. I believe that in heaven there's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of rejoicing. I believe that we're going to have something. I don't know if this is... Somebody will consider this as disrespectful, irreverent, but we're going to have something similar to America's Funniest Home Videos. We're going to have something where as we go back and see the things that are happening, we're going to see some of the funny things that have happened. I tell you, I sit around with ministers often, and we just talk about the funny things that we see, the stupid mistakes that we've made, and we laugh, and yet God still used us, and God still blessed us in spite of our mistakes. I believe that God gets a kick sometimes out of seeing us, just like we do our children. When they make mistakes, we laugh and have fun. You know, I believe that they I believe that God does that. God sees things like that. And so there is an appropriate type, but there is an inappropriate type of jesting. And I tell you what, I have also 
experienced this. I can remember some of the very people, the guy who was used the most in my life and changed my life. I got, I just was joking around. And, you know, sometimes as you joke, you use insult. And uh, we have this saying about insult as the greatest form of flattery. And, you know, if you're kidding with a person, sometimes you'll say things. And if you were to take it at totally face value, it would be an insult. But people know that you're saying it. And actually, you can actually endear yourself to a person by doing that if it's in a proper way. I certainly can't explain that, I hope, uh, properly. But hopefully everybody understands what I'm saying. There is an appropriate type of jesting, jesting but there is an inappropriate and I've done that, too. And this man who was so important to me, I got to kidding with him, and I was talking about him and saying some things, and I went too far. And uh, he didn't say anything to me, but his wife did. She called me up the next day, brought me over to the house, and I could tell she'd been crying, and I had no idea what was wrong. But, man, I loved him and his wife, and I went over there to see if there was anything I could help with. And, boy, she exploded on me about, you made fun of my husband, you humiliated him. I tell you, that really, really grieved me. I was only 18 years old when that happened, and I began to learn the hard way that there is a type of jesting that is not convenient. I certainly didn't mean a thing, I, but just to say that it was a joke was insufficient. And you know what? It never totally recovered. I did damage to that lady that stayed with her until the day that she died. And, I mean, she forgave me, and we went on with our relationship and stuff, but it, it's still, it's hard to undo some of those kind of things. And I realize that there are times that, boy, we just need to use wisdom. I, I don't know how to spell that out. As I said, I'm still learning myself. But I can say this. I have learned that any time the person you are joking with or jesting with, if you begin to perceive that they aren't enjoying it, if they aren't pleased with it, well, then you can write that down for sure that that is inappropriate or not convenient jesting. In other words, you need to always have this attitude where you're trying to bless other people and minister to them. And if, as you joke with them and as you do things with them, if they are blessed by it, and if you can see that it's ministering to them and it's positive, well, then that's okay. But boy, if you can ever see that you are offending a person or if they aren't enjoying it, they may not have to say anything. They may not be hurt or mad, but if they just aren't entering in, if they're trying to change the subject or whatever, you need to be sharp enough to take a clue and stop that. The scripture here is listing this right in the same category with fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, filthiness is also this jesting, which is not convenient. And I tell you, I have seen a lot of people do this, myself included. I still deal with this. You know, I make mistakes sometimes. I don't do it very often because of some of the things that I've learned the hard way. And some people could say, well, man, the easy way to do that is just to never joke about anything, be totally serious as a heart attack all the time. Well, I really don't believe that that's appropriate either. It's specifying here jesting, which is not convenient. There is a convenient type of fun and levity. And I tell you, a lot of Christians need to lighten up, and they need some joy in their life. I guarantee you, it is fun being a Christian. It beats being in the world. Christians are the only ones who really have anything to be happy about and to have good times over. But there is a right and a wrong way to do it. And so, at the end of this verse, he says, but rather giving of thanks. In other words, the antidote for this foolish talking, jesting, which is not convenient, filthiness, etc., all of this is thanksgiving. You know, again, 
Thanksgiving, a person who is a thankful person is not a self-centered person. A person who is only thinking about themselves never says thank you because they don't think about the other person. They don't care about the other person. They're just in it for what they can get themselves. They are totally self-centered. Do you know Thanksgiving, if you participate in that, if you practice it, it makes you a selfless person. It makes you think about the other person. And again, see, I believe that the reason he says, after he mentioned these negative things, he says, but rather giving of thanks, if you put the emphasis on, I want to be a person who is thankful, I want to be a person who blesses other people, who is always thinking more about the other person than myself, if you get that attitude, then that will keep you from doing jesting, which is not convenient, and foolish talking, silly, and, and you know, buffoonery and stuff like that. You won't just be thinking about yourself. You'll be thinking about other people. A person who is a thankful person is a person who thinks of other people. And if you're thinking of the other person, see, that's a characteristic of God's kind of love. God's kind of love is not self-serving. It is not self-pleasing. It always thinks more of the other person. So if you're walking in love, you're walking in thanksgiving, you're going to be blessing other people instead of yourself, and it will keep you from ever making these mistakes and getting into the inconvenient or inappropriate type of jesting and talking. In verse 5, he says, For this you know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, this passage of Scripture on the surface really looks problematic. It really looks like it's contradicting just a lot of the teaching that Paul has given on the subject of grace. And that certainly is not true. It looks like on the surface when it says that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It, it looks like it's saying that if any person does these things, they cannot be saved. How does this fit with the fact that once we get born again, God isn't imputing sin unto us? I dealt with that uh, a lot in the book of Romans that God doesn't deal with us based on performance. Our relationship with God is not based on how good we live, etc. It looks like that it's saying that if a person goes out and commits adultery, then, man, they don't have any inheritance. They lose their salvation. That looks like God deals with us exactly according to our, our performance. But, you know, I believe that the way to explain this, there's a couple of things I want to bring out here. Number one, this is talking about the nature and character of a person rather than an individual act. Now, what I mean by that is that a Christian can go commit adultery with a whore. He can go into a prostitute, and he could have a relationship, but that does not make him a whoremonger, even though he may have had a relationship with a whore. It does not make... A, per, a Christian can go do something that is unclean, and that includes a large range of things. Uh, Bob Yandian, in his teaching, goes into these words, and he goes into the Greek words here for unclean. And he, I mean, he doesn't use this one verse in particular, I don't think, but in the Gospels, he talks about unclean spirits, and he believes that that's talking about homosexuality. I personally haven't studied that out, I don't know, but I believe it could include that. It could include all kinds of unclean sexual behavior here. So it's possible for a Christian to go commit a homosexual act. I know some Christians who have done it. And they were truly born again. And I mean, they proved it to me by their actions because they were repentant. 
and they were grieved over it, and they changed, and they responded, and now they're walking with the Lord, and very productive. Some of the best ministers I've ever heard in my life have had homosexual actions, and they, of their own testimony, they were a believer when they did it, and they were wrong. But see, that doesn't make them an homosexual just because they commit that homosexual act. Now, I know that some people are saying, man, what are you saying? Well, if you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. See, that's the exact same type of statement is said right here in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5. It says these kind of people, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on in the next verse and he says, And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And again, I use this example. Back in the fifth chapter, it says that there was one of the Christians there who had had a sexual relationship with his father's wife, First uh, Corinthians five one. So apparently that's like a stepmother, and so there was somebody there who committed an adulterous, an act of fornication, and yet he says you aren't those things because you've been sanctified and washed. This doesn't mean that they did all of these things before they were born again, but here in the fifth chapter is a person who did this, and the Lord ministered forgiveness to him over in the second Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we see that this man retained his salvation and was still a part of the body of Christ, and they were instructed to receive him back into fellowship. You see what I'm saying here? In other words, a Christian can sin. But that sin does not make a Christian a sinner. Now, I dealt with this in Romans chapter 6, verses 18 and 20 and 22. And I've already written some footnotes on this. I encourage you to go back to it. But a Christian's sin does not make them a sinner any more than a sinner's good acts make them a Christian. You can't become a Christian just because you do some righteous acts. You've got to be born again. All of your good acts can't change your sinful nature. You've got to have that new birth change it. Well, in the same way, once you're a Christian, your sin doesn't change your righteous nature. You still retain the moniker of a saint. You are a saint, even though you may not be living like one. Even though you may go out and have an adulterous relationship, it doesn't make you an adulterer. You are a saint who committed adultery, and it's wrong, and it should not have been done, and it will cost you, but it doesn't change your nature. So see, what I'm saying through this is, that when he's, when he's talking here about no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, he's talking here about this is descriptive of people who this is their nature. It's their character. He's talking about lost people here who are whoremongers. A Christian may go have a relationship with the whore, but it wouldn't put them into this category. In other words, this is not saying anybody who ever commits any of these things has no part in the kingdom of God, because there are scriptural examples of Christians who had sexual problems and committed sexual sins and covetous. Man, you know, it says right here that nor a covetous person, and I can guarantee you that just about every Christian at some time or another has coveted something. 
When we see these advertisements on television, and man, we get to coveting a new car. We look at somebody's computer, and man, you covet it. You want this. You want that. Probably every Christian has been guilty of this at some time or another, but it doesn't mean that you are in this category that he's talking about. In the very next verse, he says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. The wrath comes on the children of disobedience, not talking about the children of obedience, not the saints of God. This, again, is being it's talking about unbelievers. Again, Christians can do some of the same things as unbelievers, but it doesn't make them an unbeliever. They are a saint. They are born again. They are a believer by nature. And again, you can see the same progression of thought that was over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because he talked about all of these things, and he said, Such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Well, down in the 8th verse, it's the same progression. After he said these things, that this these kind of people won't inherit the kingdom of God, in verse 8 he says, For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. If this is saying that once you're saved, you can never do these things, because if you do, you would not be born again. You have no part in the kingdom of God. If that was true, then he wouldn't even have to put in this admonition at the end of verse 8 about walk as children of light. In other words, you were darkness, now you're light. You can't sin. No, that's not what he's saying. The very fact that he admonishes them to walk like they're children of light shows that they can not walk as children of light. They can go participate in those sinful acts. So I hope you see what I'm saying here. He's basically, he's been talking about walking in love, imitating God. Don't do these things. This should not be named among Christians because you know that unbelievers, people who are whoremongers, and he's not saying that any person who ever commits a whoredom is a whoremonger, but he's talking about people who this is their nature. This is characteristic of them. These people don't have eternal life in them. And you don't want to be like them. You don't want to live like an unbeliever. You know, the very word character, it means the moral or ethical structure of a person or a group. In other words, the character of a Christian is godliness. Now, they can operate in ungodliness, but their character, their nature, the real core of that person is godliness. Now, the real core of a sinner is ungodliness. They can act good. And at times they can even look to and appear better than some Christians who aren't living the way that they should. But you know what? The core is still corrupt. And so the character of a lost man is bad. The character of a born-again person is good. And yet, born-again people can act bad, and lost people can act good. But it doesn't change their character. It doesn't change their nature. That only happens by the new birth. So here Paul is saying that unbelievers, whoremongers, unclean people, covetous people, who is an idolater, they don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. And he says, don't let anybody deceive you. He says, people who this is their character, that this is their nature, it's their makeup, people who this is the way that they are, not just people who commit these things sometimes, but people who love this. This is what they are. It's uh, definitive of their whole character and nature. It says, don't let anybody deceive you. These kind of people, the wrath of God comes upon them, the children of disobedience. 
Now, again, because a Christian can participate and do some of these same acts, does that mean that wrath is going to come upon them? Well, in the seventh verse, he says, Don't be ye not therefore partakers with them. Partakers of what? Is this talking about don't partake in their sin, or is it talking about don't partake of their wrath? Is God's wrath going to come on a Christian if he gets out of walking in holiness and gets into sin? Well, once again, all of the scriptures in the Word of God concerning holiness, I mean, excuse me, concerning grace, teach against this. They teach that our position with God is something that is not earned, but it's inherited. It's a gift of God. And I've already established this in a lot of cases. I just hadn't got time to go back through all of that. But that's what the Scriptures teach as a whole. I believe that what this is talking about is that God's wrath does come on the children of disobedience. And there are many examples. I've already talked about this. So if a Christian gets into sin, does that mean that his wrath is going to come upon us? Well, no, but yes, in a sense. In other words, it's possible. And here's what I mean by this. Is it God's wrath has already been placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we do not bear the wrath and the punishment of God. That's already been placed upon Jesus, and so therefore we will not receive it. And I've already got a lot of scriptures and a lot of footnotes that I've written on that subject. But then on the other hand, if we participate with the unbelievers, we can come indirectly, not intentionally, not vindictively or maliciously from God, but indirectly we can receive the wrath of God on sin. Now, what I'm talking about here is that, you know, in the book of Revelation, the Lord said this to his people in Revelation 18.4. He told them to come out from among Babylon, this false religious system, lest you be a partaker of their sins and receive her plagues. It's from Revelation 18.4. In other words, he warned his children to get out of there because he did not want to punish them. His wrath was coming upon his enemies. You know, in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 2, the scripture there says that God reserves his wrath for his enemies. God's anger and wrath is directed at his enemies. For those who have accepted Jesus and are born again, we are not the enemies of the Lord. We are his saints, and God's wrath is not directed towards us. But in the same way that Lot, you know, lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he vexed his righteous souls, what it says over in Second Peter chapter 2, from day to day by seeing their unlawful deeds. And because of that, there was a pull from the ungodly people and their ungodly ways on Lot and his family. Now, God's wrath was not intended for Lot. As a matter of fact, the two angels came and grabbed Lot and his wife and his daughters by the hand and literally drugged them out of town, being merciful unto them. I mean, if he would have left it up to Lot, Lot would have still been there when the fire and brimstone fell. But God, out of mercy for Lot and his wife and his two daughters, he grabbed them by the hand and took them out of the town. But he told them not to look behind them. Well, Lot and his two daughters didn't, but his wife did. And when she looked behind, she got caught up in the plague that came on Sodom and Gomorrah. The fire and brimstone came on her. She turned into a pillar of salt. Now, that was not God's direct judgment on them. He wasn't punishing them. He wasn't punishing her. But rather, when she turned around, she became a partaker of what was happening to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, see, I believe that that kind of thing can still happen. In other words, God is not going to judge a believer for their sin. 
that judgment has already been placed upon Jesus. He's going to still walk in mercy and in grace towards us. But does that mean that we can just go live in sin? No, because number one, Satan is going to come against you, and Satan will inflict punishment upon you if you yield to him. Romans six sixteen says that. But also, even the wrath of God that is that is falling upon unbelievers, a Christian could get caught up in that. Say, for instance, that somebody was running with a lot of unbelievers, people who are out, uh, you know, stealing and murdering, killing and doing things like this. And if a Christian got caught up in that, even though they may not have committed a murder, or let's say, go worst case scenario, even if they did get involved in a robbery and actually wound up murdering somebody, and I mean, they were just totally wrong, doing things totally contrary to their born-again nature. God, in His mercy would not bring his wrath and his judgment and his punishment upon those people. But he might bring it upon the unbelievers. And through the association with those unbelievers, if he's running with the unbelievers and if God's judgment came on them, if he brought the police and caught them and this guy was in the same car with them, did you know what? He might partake of their judgment and of their punishment. You can look at it this way. Somebody, you know, that was running with Hitler, and man, there were millions of people around the world praying for the intervention of God against this madman and to stop World War II. And I'm convinced that it was God that brought defeat to the German armies, and God intervened, and God confused their counsel, and God did a lot of things there. And yet there were some Christians that were on the German side. And you know what? Many of them became a partaker of the wrath of God that was vented towards Hitler and his troops. But yet if a Christian was on that side, whether it was one of the countries that was, you know, through conquest and they were conscripted and they were forced to fight in the German army or whatever the reasons were, if they were on that German side, they could have partaken of some of the judgment and the punishment that came on Germany, not because it was personally directed towards those believers, but because they were just in a place that they shouldn't have been. So do you see what I'm saying? God's wrath would not directly come upon a believer because of his covenant. But we need to be careful that when we, you know, I've got in one of my footnotes here, if you're sleeping with the enemy and God's wrath comes on the enemy, you could get caught in the line of fire. That is not a wise thing to do. Amen? And so, indirectly, the, the wrath of God could come on us, and that's the reason he says don't be partakers with them. In other words, God's wrath isn't coming on us. It's coming on the children of disobedience. So distance yourself. Don't get in bed with them. Don't let God's wrath affect you. It's certainly not God's will. You've been redeemed from it. I believe that that's important. Now, this does not mean that you totally isolate yourself from unbelievers. You can have relationship, association with unbelievers in a way that is not damaging to you. And I believe that the key to discerning whether it's a good or a bad relationship is who's influencing who. Are you in a relationship to where you are the godly influence and you are really impacting them and changing them? If that's so, I believe that you can continue that so that you can be a witness to these people. But if you're in a situation where you're the one being influenced, if you are not there preaching the gospel, if you aren't ministering the word... And I don't mean that you just have to stand up and preach at them, but I mean if you aren't the one that's on the ministering end, if you are being ministered to, then you need to get out of that relationship. Say, for instance, you're around a group of people who are doing ungodly things. If you can influence them in a godly way, if you can impact and change that situation, well, then you can persist. But don't put yourself in a tempting situation. Don't put yourself around ungodliness to where they are the ones who are 
dominating and controlling the relationship. So, in other words, don't become partakers with them. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers is the way that he put it over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. There is a way to be yoked, but not unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You can come to know people. You know, your neighbors, people that you work with, you can love those people. You could go out with them. You could do things with them in an effort to love them and to lead them to the Lord. But you can't do it in a way to where they are dominating and controlling you, influencing you. In verse 8, he says, For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Once again, we see Paul arguing for a godly life, not from the fear standpoint that God's going to punish you if you do something wrong, but he's, he's doing it from the standpoint of, hey, it's your nature. You were like some of these people. You were like these whoremongers, these unclean people. You used to do those kind of things, but now you are light in the Lord. Notice he didn't say, now you are becoming light. Now you've got a little bit of light and let it increase. You know, this is a point that I've made I don't know how many times as we've gone through the New Testament, but it's constant. Paul constantly uses this type of reasoning that we are already light. You aren't getting more and more light. Now, you may be manifesting more and more of it as you renew your mind and submit yourself to the Lord. You may be showing forth more of the glory of God and the goodness of God uh, in your outer actions and thoughts. But the truth is that in your spirit right now, you are as light, you are as clean, as pure, as godly as you will ever be. That's your nature. This is the way that you are. And this is what Paul is arguing for here. He says, man, don't act like this. Don't act like an unbeliever. Recognize that the wrath of God comes on unbelievers, people who just constantly reject. If they harden themselves and become totally reprobate, the wrath of God's going to come on these people for this. You don't want to be a part of that. See, a person who's truly born again, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. A person who is truly born again has a desire to live for God. Now, they may not be doing it perfectly, but that is their desire. It's their nature to live for God. A person who's truly born again loves God and wants to live for God. And so this is his reasoning here. He says, hey, this is not who you are. You were like that, but now you're different. Walk like who you are. Let who you are come out. Praise God, that is powerful. Again, I've ministered on this before, so I need to move on, but this is really the reason for holiness. So many people are trying to live for God because they feel that they have to to have God accept them. They've got to earn their way into heaven. And that's not the right motivation for living God. We need to recognize that through the grace and the mercy of God, when you confess Jesus as your Lord, you get born again, and your nature just gets changed automatically. And then we need to get a revelation of that. And if we could ever really see that and understand what that means, get a full revelation of how much God loves us, then we would just naturally start living holy because we would be so compelled. We would look at things like this and say, well, man... The wrath of God comes on whoremongers, adulterers, unclean persons, covetous people. And I love God. I wouldn't want to ever do anything that would grieve the Holy Spirit like we just read up in the fourth chapter. And because I love God, well, if he's displeased with these things, if he's going to punish the unbelievers because they do this, I certainly would never do it. See, if a person really understood that, if they really had relationship with the Lord, 
and love the Lord and had their mind renewed to who they are in Christ, they would not go live in sin because they would just love God. That's what Paul is arguing for right here. He's saying, don't be partakers with them because now you, you aren't like that anymore. You got a new nature. Let your nature function. Start walking as a child of the light. Well, that's such a powerful truth, simple truth. In verse 9, he says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Here's another reason for living holy. Now, this is a parenthetical phrase here. He just said in the previous verse, you live holy because it's your nature. You were darkness, but now you're light. You were a sinner, but now you're a saint. You were unholy, but now you're holy. Live like it. Walk like it. And then in parentheses, he puts in kind of a little uh, phrase here, and he says, because the fruit of the Spirit... Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. All of those things right there, the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. In other words, goodness, righteousness, and truth are the type of weather conditions, are things that cause the fruit of the Spirit to grow. Now, let me make some comparisons here. You know, God gives us this fruit, not dependent upon performance. It's a grace deal. It comes by the goodness of God, the same way that everything else comes. It's like a person putting the seed in the ground. It's committed to the ground, not because the ground is worthy or because it's better than anything else. The seed is there. It's the seed that's going to produce the fruit. But does that mean that you can just let the ground go? that you don't have to cultivate it, that you don't have to water it, that you don't have to fertilize it or do anything, because after all, it's the seed that's going to produce. Well, it is true that it's the seed that produces. But you know what? You've got to have some conditions. or Otherwise, the seed can be hindered. You can actually hinder the effectiveness of that seed. Well, in the same way, God's it's a grace gift. It's put on the inside of us. Your born-again spirit has love, joy, peace, etc. all in it. But you know what? If you're operating in anger, if that's what you have chosen to live like, if you aren't walking in the light, but instead you're walking in the darkness, it's going to hinder the fruit from growing. You could put a seed in the ground, and that seed could be an incorruptible seed, a perfect seed, but don't ever give it any sunlight, and guess what? It won't grow. It certainly won't bring forth fruit. There has to be light there. And this is the exact analogy that he's using in these passages of Scripture. If you want the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, if you want those things to abound in your life, start walking in the light. Start walking. The light here is just descriptive of anything that is of God. God is light. Everything that comes from God, God is love. God is holy. He is righteous. He doesn't speak lies, but he speaks the truth. He doesn't steal, but he labors. And he does positive things. He's a giver instead of a taker. If you look at the context of all of this, all of the things that he was admonishing right here, you start walking in the light, and guess what? The fruit of the Spirit will begin to start manifesting itself. The seed of it is already there. It's already in your spirit, but if you want it to come out of your spirit and manifest itself in your physical life, then you're going to have to start cooperating. You're going to have to give it a little light. You're going to have to fertilize it with holiness and good actions and doing what's right instead of what's wrong. Now, see, that's not contrary to grace. There are some people that teach grace to such a degree that they say that God's word, his fruit, you could use this, the fruit of the spirit, is going to work in your life regardless of what you do. No, that's not true. 
I can say this, that God has planted the seed inside of you, and God is willing to release his fruit through you regardless of your performance. It's not based on your goodness. But you do have to cooperate with it. It's not that your actions change God's motive. He's already planted the seed, but now you've got to give it some light. There's some things you have to do to make the word work. The Spirit is within you, and He wants to produce all of this fruit, but you have to cooperate. You have to let it flow through you. You can't just walk in criticism, griping, murmuring, bitterness, wrathful talk, and see love flow through you. They're contrary to each other. Joy? Joy is not going to flow. It's not going to be a fruit that manifests itself in your life if you are just constantly bitter in talking about people. That's powerful. If you look at this, verse 8 actually goes directly from there to verse 10. Verse 9 was a parenthetical phrase. So let's go back to verse 8. It says, For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then in verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. NIV translates this as saying, Find out what pleases the Lord. But you know, I really do not believe that that is the accurate meaning here. When he's talking about proving, what he's talking about, the word prove means to make manifest, to show, to display. In other words, he's talking about, he had just said that you now have a new nature. You already have this on the inside of you. Now walk it out and show it. Evidently, manifest to others what is an acceptable lifestyle. Show other people what a godly person lives like. Reveal what the holy nature on the inside of you leads people to do. You be the Bible that people read. You know, we've heard that expression before that you're the only Bible that some people will ever read. And you need to make sure that they're reading the proper thing, that they're seeing a true representation. And I believe that that's what he's talking about right here. I'm out of time, so I'm going to have to stop here. But we will continue here in Ephesians 5.11 on our next tape. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net, and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.